Hey guys, it's Lucy and welcome back to Teen Speak Up. In today's episode, I interviewed Stephen Baker. Stephen is an 18-year-old activist from California. I had so much fun talking to him and let's get into it. So Stephen, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am Stephen. I um, am 18 years old. I'm in college, a freshman, and I live on occupied Kumeyaay land, which is also known as San Diego. I'm super passionate about a lot of different issues, but right now, climate justice and indigenous rights are something that are really personal to me and something I'm very passionate right now. And I work with Extinction Rebellion as the National Outreach Coordinator. I work with Team Enough San Diego. Um, I work with Meddling Kids Movement as the field director, and I work with Future Coalition. What would you say your rise to activism was? So my rise to activism, I think, started in 2018 um, after the Parkland shooting in Florida. I think that is where a lot of activists share a collective spike in passion um, because that was where the uh, March for Our Lives was born and uh, movements like the March for Our Lives or Team Enough. Um, so that was really my start to activism and where I really got started, as well as organizing the international, or as well as in, in, oh my god, as well as organizing the walk off at my high school and my city's March for Our Lives. Yeah, I feel like, like you said, that that the. Um that March for Lives was a lot of people's rise to activism just because it was such like a an easy way for everyone to become more informed about what was going on and uh, especially I don't know after after hearing about Parkland and like seeing those Snapchat videos and seeing like everything that was going on it really like resonated with so many kids especially high school students because we were all just like what the fuck like this could have happened to like any of us it's crazy and I think that a lot of a lot of kids were just so impacted and especially like I knew some kids personally that were involved and or went to the school at the time and it was just like so scary hearing about it and I feel like so many kids just it was really sparked everyone's like interest in activism and advocating on behalf of something that was is so so important to talk about was that your first time leading the San Sorry, was that your first time organizing? Um, essentially, yeah. So I organized my school's walk-off, which was, I mean, it was a local, it was a smaller, you know, organization or um, smaller movement that I started at my school. But yeah, so organizing for March for Lives in San Diego was my first organization experience and definitely something that changed my um, view of the world drastically. What would you say activism means to you and what does being an activist mean to you? Yeah, so being an activist to me means constantly resisting against any form of discrimination or oppression and questioning all forms and existences of authority. But more importantly, it means to me being present in whatever space that I am occupying and making sure that I am listening to the marginalized voices that I'm hearing and listening to and recognizing what others, what I may have that others may not have. And it also to me means exploiting my own privilege to give others a more equal environment. Yeah, I feel like um, exploiting your privilege is not talked about as much and not enough people do it. Um, And that's something that 
definitely needs to be talked about. Um, and then I know you're a big advocate for indigenous rights and LGBTQ plus rights. And how does the intersection of your identity shape your passion for activism? And how has being a member of these communities affected how do you advocate? So, yeah, I'm bisexual as well as an indigenous person. Um, my identity, or I guess you could say identities, have made me fight harder and stronger. I see it as because I am part of two marginalized communities, although I am blessed with the um, ability to be cis passing as well as white passing, um, I have an opportunity as well as an obligation to fight on behalf of those communities and to fight for the people that have brought me here and the people that came before me and my ancestors because the land that I live on and everything that I have is given to me from my ancestors. So. I feel as if it's my duty to fight for them and for what they have given me. And being bi as well as indigenous has radically transformed the way I advocate for change. The way I view, um, I guess, the climate crisis in specifics is incredibly personal because as an indigenous person, my life belongs to the land on which I live on and which I step every day on. My identity is intertwined with this land, specifically that of Turtle Island, which is America and Canada. Um, and so my mental health and physical health, as well as my comfortability within my identity or identities seems to be under threat by climate change. I mean, everybody is under threat, but I feel as if for indigenous people, it's not only our lives, it's our soul and our spirit. Um, and so in that way, identity has changed how I advocate because I choose to highlight really the lack of communication and understanding so many activists and organizations have with indigenous people as well as the mis miseducation or under um, education that many people have about um, the LGBT plus community within the indigenous community and just how historically accepting that the indigenous community has been especially a lot of the plains tribes or um, the northeastern tribes in the united states have been accepting for basically um non-conforming people two-spirit people or um, other marginalized identities today and so i think being part of those identities gives me a unique perspective and makes a lot of these fights a lot more personal to me for sure um so Going into another topic, um, we can definitely go back to that, like, come back to that um, later, but going into another topic, I know that cloudivism is a big thing in the activism community, especially the climate justice ad, um, activism community, um, and if for those of you who are listening and don't know what cloudivism is it's when someone does something definitely a variety of issues that i think are bundled up but they're tied to privilege and guilt as well as intent so at its base i see cloudivism as someone using their voice as an activist with the specific intent of gaining notoriety and personal success rather than distributing your recognition to those who aren't given the same opportunities and i think that can also be linked to performative activism um, which is where someone participates with the intent of achieving social capital and these types of activists or cloudivists oftentimes profit off of movements and people who tend to be affected by the issue at hand more yeah so I'll extend on it a little bit. So with March for Our Lives as an example, um, and 
some of the leaders at Martial Art Lives, of course, not all of the leaders, but a lot of the national team and the national executives are white and cisgender, and most of the time as well, they are able-bodied. And they've also simultaneously become the face of the gun violence prevention movement, although the gun violence prevention movement has historically been led by people of color, specifically black women and black mothers. And then you see the accolade and the plaudit by the media that these teens from March for Our Lives, the national executives who oftentimes are white and cis and able-bodied, like I said, have gotten. And then you contrast that with the critique and neglect that people of color have been handed within this movement. And it's just very telling of how activism environments work and who we focus on and who we highlight and applaud. And I think another part is um, another way that clouttivists or another way to see a clouttivist is how they engage in the activist space. So you may have heard the term slacktivist, which is where someone does a majority of their activism online via social media or pledges or petitions. And I think there's an exception to slacktivism where it's either underprivileged people or disabled people who can't have, they don't have the ability to attend rallies and marches. Um, or they may not feel as safe in these spaces of civil disobedience or direct action. But there's a lot of activists who are able to attend these um, protests or rallies, and they are able to go into these spaces without being worried for their own safety. But instead, they just sit at home on their phone, repost three things on their story, and feel less guilty about their privilege. (laughs) Oh my gosh, the way you phrase that. I love that. It's... It's very frustrating, especially when you're working your... It's also frustrating when you're working your ass off and someone is like, oh, you're you're just doing this for, for the public eye and you're just doing this to get press and stuff. And no, there's... There, um, but have you had any personal experiences with Claudivism? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't work with March for Our Lives anymore. I... Um, I spent a year with March for Our Lives and ended up leaving because I viewed their behavior and their interaction with people of color and their action of silencing people of color and their voices really unacceptable. So I decided to leave. I don't believe that I deserve a round of applause for that. I think that's just something I should have done. I think most people should understand that when an organization is blatantly disrespecting people of color, it's time to leave and you should not be upholding Um, in supporting organizations like that. And I know what you're saying definitely about people really not feeling, you don't feel as if they're in the movement for the same reason you are and they're in it for different reasons. And I think another thing, just a side part that I've noticed is those same people that you really don't feel are in the movement for the right reason or you think there's something a little fishy about them, they tend to be the most moderate of the activists. Um, And although not all of them, are white. I think a lot of clouttivists oftentimes tend to be white and they interact and operate within these spaces of activism, specifically where they're comfortable in. Um, so where these activists or clouttivists may be at a lesser risk of discrimination. Um, and a lot of times they, like I said, hold more moderate views because their moderate views and ideals continue to uplift the social and economic hierarchy that benefits non-marginalized individuals and communities and so they don't feel comfortable holding quote-unquote quote, 
radical beliefs because it threatens their privilege and the status quo that enables them to live more successfully than those of us who are marginalized. And specifically for March for Our Lives, what I've noticed is that although I guess, unfortunately, in the world that we live in, the, even the idea of gun reform is radical, there is very little talk about gun control and preventing gun violence amongst police and how we need to demilitarize the police and how we need to benefit people of color who have been affected by police violence and how we need to sympathize with people of color in those communities of color who distrust the police and distrust law enforcement and how ICE has become a militarized organization that's ripping children from their mothers and how the police, especially in low-income communities of color, have become they see black people and they see brown people with targets on their backs and they don't feel any, they don't feel hesitant to shoot these people dead in the streets and target them on a daily basis. So I think I know what you're talking about with these activists that just, they don't feel like they're in the same kind of mindset that you are. And when you bring up these issues, they, they get very aggressive. Um, and when you bring up issues like that can be more radical, they get, kind of uncomfortable if that makes sense yeah that's so true i i do also think that cloudivism is a big thing within the the climate justice movement a lot of people have been going to a lot of people go to these the rallies and uh, marches and stuff to post about it on instagram and not because they actually care they actually are educating themselves and they know what's going on um what is your opinion on that there is a lot of um, cloudism within the um, climate justice movement. And personally, I'm sick of seeing these girls with their free people outfits and Visco C1 turned all the way up <laughs> on their protest sign um, because it doesn't do anything. True. Of course, politics are very important and seeing a large number of people is incredibly important. And even when these people may come with the intent of just taking that picture and then just staying for a couple of minutes, they may change and they may learn something new. And that's incredibly important, but there are activists who make themselves seem to be bigger than what they really are and that their work is bigger than what it really is because they're showing up, but that's all they're doing. They don't go home and do anything else. And it's not your own. It's not just your physical presence. That's absolutely important. It's your voice. That's important. It's your presence in every space that you can be in. But at the same time, you have to have the same, the right intent behind it. You have to be willing to put yourself in uncomfortable situations and you have to be willing to hear criticism and you have to be willing to face situations that you haven't been in before to really, really understand what's going on. Yeah, that's so true. And I think a lot of that happens with a lot of people. Like a lot of people will go to something, um, like a march or a protest because all their friends are going and then when um when they're there they're like oh this was such a powerful experience and I know um with myself like something that I have been lacking on is educating myself especially when it comes to um the climate crisis and I, one of my New Year's resolutions was to become more involved with that and learn more um, because I do have a lack of education when it comes to that. One, because it's not something that school ever talks about. And two, um, I haven't been doing my part. But I do think that a lot of people will go to protests and then they're like, 
oh, this is such a prevalent issue, I should educate myself. And yeah, that's a, a good way to, um, to educate yourself by showing up, but showing up shouldn't be the only thing you do. It should, it should be that and then educating yourself, advocating, and not only posting on social media. Another thing in the activism community is call-out culture. Have you had an experience with that? And what is your um, your stance on that? Yeah, so um, I think call-out culture is really, it's really tricky because there are times where people should be called out for their BS. There are times where somebody makes a mistake that's so grave and that is so wrong that it should be publicly called out by everybody and we have to take a stance against those actions. So whether that's some somebody is being blatantly racist or blatantly homophobic or actively suppressing somebody's voice and a voice of a marginalized person. Those people should be called out. But I think at the same time, we have to be careful and be very, I guess, picky because when we just go around left and right calling other people out, we create this culture within our organizations that becomes incredibly toxic and it just becomes a offense-defense mentality where you're always either on the offense or you're always either or you're always on the defense and you're defending yourself or you're attacking somebody else you're defending yourself you're attacking somebody else and it becomes this really obnoxious cyclical kind of system that just doesn't seem to end and some people get applauded for calling out other people while other people will call out an organization and they get um reprimanded and talked down to and told that their career is on the line or they may not I've totally I've had an experience with that that's so ugh I hate that yeah so it's just it's just you have to be careful about who we call out and there are mistakes that everybody makes and I think if I can just say this really quickly people make mistakes and I think activists are forgetting that I have made my fair share of mistakes I have made colorist Uh, comments before I've gotten in quote-unquote Twitter fights and I've made comments that I absolutely regret and I said things in my life that I learned from a place of privilege and a place of ignorance and a place of just like privilege that I look back at and I feel so gross looking back at it but that is my past and I have to do everything I can do personally to unlearn what I have been taught that is racist or homophobic or sexist because we live in a world where these forms of oppression are built into our education system and to our government and our daily social lives so it's easy to learn these bad things and easy to act on them and so it's all about once you've made the mistake it's all about communication and unlearning the mistake and that you made and unlearning the reason why you made that mistake so whether it's unlearning internalized homophobia or unlearning colorism or racism or anti-indigenous comments it's all about transforming and all about moving forward and we have to understand that we're all going to make mistakes and we all have a past and we all have past that we're not proud of and we have to continue as a movement together and not continuously attacking each other on small little things for sure one sec (coughs) okay so no, I totally, I totally agree. And I think that 
if you're able to look back on your past and apologize for something you've said or whether it was on social media, which can be a very dangerous place sometimes when you're in a, a moment of, um, of anger and you make like an impulsive decision to, to type something up and put it on social media or whatever, um, I've definitely been there. Um, and I, I do, I do think that there is a time and a place for, for call out, for calling people out, but they're also like, I don't know if we go back to like the whole Amanda Seals and Sean King and the Rodney Reed case where Amanda was talking about how Rodney was tied to so many other cases or like quote unquote tied to so many other cases. I didn't do a lot of research on that, so I don't know how it ended. And then Sean reposted it and like, called Amanda all these awful things and I don't know I I don't want to go too much into that but I do think that there there is a time and a place for calling people out and um I don't know I've personally been in a situation where I wasn't a fan of the way that um this organization was handling certain situations and I did a whole four four slides story posts whatever about them and they totally like ripped me apart it was a a big thing but like I think that 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 was my fault because I was also saying okay I don't even want to get into that um but I like you were saying there is a time and a place and but but it is a very toxic thing and it very it's very very shitty when when people are saying that you're like oh you're a terrible person because you made a mistake no everybody makes mistakes and everybody has a minute or a minute or two of ignorance um and yeah i love going into tangents i'm gonna cut like half of that off um (laughs) um if you want to add any more to that or we can go into the yeah i mean i think there's two things I want to say. One is if you make a mistake that is so bad that um, people are not entitled to be forgiven. If you make some a mistake that is so grave, that is so mean, and that is so disrespectful that somebody is going to refuse to forgive you, that is their choice. If you make a comment that is just so blatantly racist or homophobic or sexist, etc., People don't have to forgive you. You are not entitled to forgiveness. You don't have the right to be forgiven by everybody. And all you can do is apologize, educate yourself, unlearn certain things that made you say that comment or made you act in the way that you did and continue moving on and better yourself while understanding the mistake you made. And people don't have to forgive you for what you did because what you may have done could be incredibly harmful to somebody and it is their personal choice and their personal experience to forgive you and another thing i'd say is when we participate in call out culture and when we continuously attack each other we don't leave room for growth we don't leave room for people to make errors and grow from those errors which is exactly what life is about in school you're allowed to and sometimes you're allowed to make mistakes and you're allowed to redo things you know, you have you can write an essay and you can fix your um, grammar issues. You can fix your typos. 
we have to operate in a space where we allow people to correct themselves and learn things and become a better person after their mistakes and learn from their mistakes. And we have to work simultaneously as a cohesive movement or else we're not going to get anything done. If we're continuously attacking each other, we're dead. We're not going to get anything done. Gun violence is only going to get worse. The climate crisis is going to get worse and worse. Women's rights are going to continue to be stripped away from them. These issues, we have to work together or else there's no solving it. That's so true, yeah. Um, Have you experienced any toxicity within the climate justice movement or the gun violence movement or, or sorry, the anti-gun violence movement or um, any of any, any movement in activism in general? (laughs) Yes, um, I've absolutely seen and have been met with toxicity, I think recently, most recently in the climate movement. Um, Recently, I guess there was a person who threw some incredibly anti-Indigenous remarks at me um, in person, literally right next to me, and um, had no, had no, like, fear about saying it, didn't feel bad saying it, just was incredibly nonchalant about it, but at the same time, the next day, they're railing against colonialism and capitalism perpetually, and wanting this revolution, and sticking up for indigenous voices while at the same time being incredibly anti-indigenous and so i just find it's this false projection of self that's so incredibly toxic and dangerous to all of our movements and i don't believe people like that should be holding positions of decision making and power in organizations when they're so blatantly anti-indigenous or you know ignorant um and you know, I interacted within that space as I think was the best way I could, which I, I completely ignored it. I pretended like I didn't hear it. And I went on with my day and I talked about it with some of my close friends and got over it. Um, and that issue is being resolved at the moment internally. And that's all you can do. You don't have to make this big scene about it. Um, but just, there is that two-faced mentality that a lot of these activists who do hold incredible positions of power um, in organizations and they have big voices in social media and a lot of us listen to them and look up to them. They have their flaws. And so, yeah, I mean, I've definitely had my fair share of toxicity within the climate movement. I'm sure I've been toxic to somebody within the movement. I'm probably guilty of something or another thing. You know, we're not all, we're not all innocent. So it's just the way you move around these environments. For sure. And like going back to what we were just talking about, not everybody is perfect. Not everybody's made it. Yeah. Um, not everybody hasn't, I don't know. Everybody makes mistakes. That's, that's the thing. And, um, especially with toxicity, like I've definitely been toxic towards, um, one or two or 20,000 people before. Um, but yeah, um, it, and I think that when you have, like, a big group of people all in one community, it's bound to happen. And that's in, within any environment. Like, my dad will come home and, like, tell me the tea at what happened at work. Or, I don't know. There's there's so much toxicity in the world, and it's not just in the activism community. It's everywhere. Anyway, um, can you touch on the importance of intersectionality in the climate in climate activism? Oh, 
So the climate crisis is the biggest civil rights issue of our time um, because it doesn't just affect one person or one group, acknowledging that, yes, it does touch certain groups and certain individuals and certain species and animals more than it does others, and it has its disproportionate effects. That, but there, it's also it operates in so many forms and it is aided by a number of systems of oppression, including capitalism and um, let's see, I mean, racism and settler society and settler mindsets. Um, And personally, I feel the most comfortable speaking on um, colonialism and its relationship with climate and effects on indigenous people over its other modes of operation, just because that's what I see often firsthand. Um, so the climate crisis has had the most devastating effect upon the indigenous people of Turtle Island, but also globally from Bolivia and the global south to Hawaii and Indonesia. Um, and colonialism is seen historically as one of the first forces of climate change. To be more specific, the indigenous people of Turtle Island, which consists of America and Canada, lived and acted in incredibly sustainable lifestyles and they utilized the animals they hunted not only for food but for clothing ceremony and tools and indigenous people also utilized sustainable agriculture ensuring the land that they grew on was healthy for every harvest to come um but at the arrival of the european settlers and other um, colonizers colonialism became this rampant force of destruction and it rapidly polluted our land and murdered our animals and unsustainably harvested crops and they appropriated our cultures and stole our mothers and sisters and they forced us off our land and they decimated our entire ecosystems and this really became the initial catalyst to the crisis we are seeing today so i think that um the intersectionality and the way that colonialism and settler mindset and Western imperialism intertwine with the climate crisis are imperative to acknowledge. And it's not something that we can just skip over. Yeah. And there definitely is a lack of representation of indigenous and black and brown um, people within the climate justice movement. Um, What would you what would you say about that? Yeah, I think absolutely there's this huge lack of representation, I think, to speak on Indigenous voices. Thank God we have organizations like um, the International Indigenous Youth Council. And if you look back um, just a little bit ago at um, COP, which was the climate uh, convention that they held, um, and look at the treatment that the Indigenous people were given there, um, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And Oh, COP25? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Awful. Um, yeah. So at COP25, the indigenous people were treated like nothing. Like their voices were not heard. They were not given the time or space. Um, and it's just this huge issue. And I think stemming off of that is the way that organizations look at colonialism and how individual activists look at colonialism and its relationship with the climate crisis. Mm hmm. Um. I mean, if you if you if you think about it, minority and low co- income 
communities are affected a lot more when it comes to climate change and like heat waves and hurricanes and other extreme weather conditions can be life-threatening and um I don't know if you remember um Hurricane Katrina over 1800 people were killed and these marginalized communities face an increased vulnerability when it comes to compounded stresses and um the effects of climate change often lead to like mental health issues like anxiety and depression and these people that live in inner city communities don't live don't deserve to live in fear and that definitely needs to be talked about a lot more um so do you have any advice for other youth activists on avoiding and just and destroying cloudivism in their organizations and in general yeah so as we've talked about clearly cloudivism is becoming more and more prevalent so it's definitely something all activists should be aware of and acknowledging um i think to avoid becoming a cloudivist as an individual is difficult because a lot of cloudivists go into activism with the intent of becoming popular and gaining social capital and attention solely for themselves but there are some cloudivists that have gone into activism with the right intention but they've become distracted by their initial taste of power whether that be their first interview or holding a leadership position within an organization and i think to fight against that urge for power and that human desire for that natural desire that so many humans have for power and accolade and respect and attention you have to fight that and the way you do so is when you engage in intense self-reflection and you should be constantly um, pondering your privilege and weigh in on your advantages in society that others may not have Um, and then when you talk about organizations and cloudivism within organizations to avoid that i believe the very first step and the most fundamentally effective step is having a decentralized organization where local chapters are given individual power and they look to their national team their national chapter for advice guidance and resources rather than looking at their national counterparts as superior executives um and i think the way i've seen these organizations that do have these centralized planned um structures i've seen them fall i've seen them um, deteriorate and become problematic so when you eliminate hierarchy you're eliminating the power the so when you eliminate hierarchy you're eliminating the desire for a higher position because in fact there is no higher position and Another big thing is avoiding internal bashing of your fellow organizers um, within your organization and avoiding internal secretive discussions and decisions that undermine your peers. And media opportunities should be fairly distributed. Media opportunities should be fairly distributed, and the organizations should operate co-equally as one rather than as a structure of unfairly positioned powers. And I think destroying cloudivism will come with the education and discussion that we have to have. Um, And I think that plays into, you know, um, leftist theory that revolutions come with discussion and revolutions come with education and mobilizing the masses. And that's what we have to do. And so we have to identify and we will begin to identify the traits of cloudivists. And we all will also begin to self-correct. And we'll begin to eliminate the traits that we may hold ourselves. We may start to acknowledge our 
internal desire for power and step it back. And we may pause on that and reflect on that and move forward without that desire driving us to do whatever we want. And we'll begin to hold other cloudivists accountable for their power-hungry decisions while also being respectful and not engaging in call-out culture um, because call-out culture is tied to collectivism and a lot of these collectivists think it's funny to call out other activists when in reality it's a serious thing and it's not funny that we have to call each other out for our mistakes um, it's something that should be a learning experience for all because if that activist didn't make that mistake somebody else was bound to do it so why not take what that person made as a mistake and learn from it? And the more we educate ourselves and we educate each other about hierarchies and power dynamics, the more successful our movements are going to become and the more effective the revolutions that we are pushing will become and we will see a more equitable and equal future on our horizon much faster. Definitely. Um Who are some some climate justice activists or anti-gun violence activists, indigenous rights activists, anybody that you look up to? Um, and let's see, Isabella. Yeah, definitely. I want to call out my L.A. climate strike family um, to Kevin, Chandi and Sarah and Jesus and Sophia and Sophie. All of y'all are like family to me. Um, I want to call or I want to say that I admire um, Isra a lot, and her voice is just so powerful. I admire so much Isabella Falahi. She's one of my closest friends. Liam Newport. All of y'all are so important. So a lot of those people are climate justice activists. And then other activists in general, Shana Rutman, um, Izzy from Meddling Kids Movement. I think we're just in such a unique position to have these essentially family members all across the world and all across our country that I've gotten privileged enough to know, even though I FaceTime them and I don't get to meet them in person or I'll meet them once a year, you know, it's just this family that we have grown and I've grown to know and love and appreciate with all of my heart. So definitely appreciate all of the activists that we have out there, whether or not you're with climate activism or animal rights activism, women's rights or gun violence or education or racial justice all of your work is so important so keep it up awesome you know who's also really cool jaden and willow yes love them i saw them live signing my they're so cool they're so cool shout out for okay shout out to jaden and willow for inviting the la climate strikers to their concert wait what that's so cool so awesome wait free of charge Mm -hmm. bro that that's (laughs) sick um pretty awesome Okay, so talking about the 2020 presidential BS that's happened. I'm sorry. I don't like the election. I don't like any of that stuff. It, like, stresses me out. Um, Who are you? Who do you like? Bernie, baby. Bernie or Buzz. Bernie, Senator Bernard Sanders. Bernard. Uncle Bernie, T.O. Bernie, anything you want to call him call him except a communist because that's not what it is anyway (laughs) i am here for bernie um i've been here for bernie since 2016 Uh, well i've been here for bernie since 2015 i worked on his campaign then while he was running against hillary clinton and effectively also running against 
the DNC. Um, and I'm here for him now, and I'm ready to see an entire political revolution hit um, the lawn of the White House running, and I'm ready to see revolutionary change. Awesome. If you have a second or third choice, who would it be? Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, Don't say Elizabeth. I know, I know. I like, I, but then it's like, who do I say? Exactly. <laughs> no, um, okay, so I think my second choice, although he recently dropped out, was Julian Castro. I thought specifically for his immigration policy, um, I live in a very immigrant-populated um, area, and a lot of um, the immigrants that live near me are undocumented, and so to be in this kind of environment where I live, where it's shaped who I am, and immigrants um, have changed how I view the world, and um, so many of my friends come from undocumented families, and they've just made the culture in, in the city I live in so much more rich, immigrant rights, and protecting undocumented people, and abolishing ICE, and legalizing um, border crossing are incredibly important to me, those issues, um, and they're personal to me, so Julian Castro, I really appreciate, although he has dropped out. Um, I guess any candidate that I truly believe I can trust on taking on Wall Street and um, the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare industry and um, the CEOs of fossil fuel exec or fossil fuel executives and the CEO of Exxon Mobil and Shell and um, those people that are willing to fight against those forms of corruption and the the candidates that I trust that will fight against those forms of corruption. So I don't really know who my second and third choice is. I'm still really pondering that. Um, definitely not know. Pete. <laughs> Wait, what? I said definitely not Pete. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, let's talk about how we ain't with Pete at I all. was. I will say I did like him in the beginning. Um, especially, like, we love the LGBTQ representation. I thought that was, like, great. But that wasn't the only reason I liked him, of course. Um, but, like... I don't know. I liked his policies at first. Then I found out more about him throughout the the debates, and then I was just like, no. I did like Kamala for I don't that, that's not yeah, even how you say it. I thought she was like cool, and I don't know. And then I was a she fan was of energetic. Yeah, definitely. And then I was a fan of Warren. Then we don't like capitalists, so. Period. Um. And now okay, I really put that part in. That was funny as hell. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally will. Um, I, I really like Bernie. Bernie's definitely Bernie and Booker are like my favorite. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, Booker's approach to the debates and how he approaches um, the conflicts that we're facing today. Just how he speaks about it. And his idea of radical love, I think, is so awesome. Um, definitely not my first choice, but yeah. I think his approach and his mentality is really unique. And also, just to quickly say, I appreciate the amount of diversity that is in this field, from um, gender diversity to racial diversity to um, sexual orientation. Although I think Pete is, I don't. <laughs> I think he, his message is just gay imperialism and gay occupation and gay um, not really standing up for civil rights. Um, oh, wow. Uh, I, I guess maybe he just stands for rainbow imperialism at the end of the day. 
Um, so I just I appreciate that diversity, and let's not forget that there is still diversity on the stage. Andrew Yang is Asian. Um, Cory Booker may make it to the next debate. He's black, obviously. Elizabeth Warren is a woman. Amy Klobuchar is a woman. Bernie Sanders is Jewish. Um, so um, I guess Joe Biden has been friends with black people. I don't know if that makes him diverse. Um, I think that's what he thinks does. Um, but being Obama's vice president doesn't make you diverse. And Definitely Obama not. A war criminal. So, yeah, I'm excited to bring about a revolution. It's Bernie, baby. It's time for us to see a old man, a Jewish old man in the White House to actually make some change in this world. Definitely. Um, and then a question that we ask all of our podcast guests is if you could say something to your legislators or our wonderful president, what would you say? Mm, mm. Oh my god. I know. It's a it's a think a thinking question. You have, if you yeah. need a second. That's crazy. Um there's so many words I would have for Trump. Um <laughs> I don't know if I could contain myself around him. Not because of a abundance of excitement, but rather <laughs> an abundance of anger. Yeah, um, me too. I said to my local legislation or legislators, um, it's time for them to start acting like they're really here for us. Um, for Gavin Newsom to actually act like he represents California and not big businesses and not um, Wall Street and the health insurance, and to Nancy Pelosi, who is also from California. Um, she needs to start acting like she actually cares about the government and she needs to stop acting. She needs to stop. Okay, wait. So to Gavin Newsom, who is... Okay, wait. Uh, start again. Okay. Um, to say something to my local legislation or legislators, uh, Gavin Newsom needs to start acting like he represents California and not the big businesses and Wall Street. And for Nancy Pelosi, who also represents California, to stop acting like she's only in it for the power. And only in it for the big businesses. It's time that California starts embracing these huge revolutionary policies and changes. And I'm ready to see that happen. And I'm ready to usher about that change with my friends in California and my allies and activists in California. And to Trump, uh, shit, I don't know. Uh, oh my God, what would I say to Trump? Holy crap. Well, I know I make a, a lot of commentary on every everything, but if you want to know what I would say to Trump, check out the Dear Donald Trump campaign. Yes, yes, everybody should go make sure to look at that, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what I would say to Trump. I think I would, I, I don't know what I'd say. Speaking of fellow activists, Isabella just FaceTimed me. Just That's to so let funny. everybody on the pod know. Yes. Yeah, I think to Trump, I would just say, fuck you. I hate you. That's all. I think that's all I could say to him. Valid. I like that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. If you want to um, plug anything, go yeah, for I'll it. Yeah, I'll plug myself. I'm at Stephen X Baker on Instagram, which is S-T-E-P-H-E-N-X-B-A-K-E-R. Many people will see be very surprised to know my name is Steven, not Stefan or Stefan. Um, That's so that, weird that people think it's Stefan. Oh my god. Don't e- you don't even know. Kevin Patel, this is at you. He always calls me Stefan. <laughs> um, everybody thinks my name is Stefan. It's Steven. I'm sorry to disappoint. Um, 
Yeah, that's my Instagram, Stephen X X Baker on Snapchat, Stephen X Baker on Twitter. Hit me up, follow me. I'll link everything down below. Cool. Don't link my TikTok. Anyway. I promise um, I won't. We'll avoid that. Can't get canceled. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode i had so much fun talking to steven and i really hope you guys enjoyed to listening to our conversation and honestly i think that talking about something as important as cloudivism and just like the drama that goes by the, the drama that is behind the scenes in activism the drama that you don't really see or hear um and like talking about that's very interesting but at the same time i really hope this doesn't like make you guys not want to get involved with activism because we need we need more activists it's just so it's so important speaking of which if you are interested in getting involved on the team we need more help with our marketing fundraising and event organizing team so if you are interested i will leave the link down below to apply um But yeah, seriously, guys, we love you all so, so much. And thank you for listening. And I hope you have a great day or night or morning or whenever you're listening to this. See you next week. Bye.